Like, what do I do? I don't, I've never heard of this. And so it's our own discomfort and uneasiness that sometimes makes us disconnect or kind of end it quickly and not engage more and more or, or explore or try and make them feel better thinking that it's about them when there's a significant part that it's about us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Mr. Khan Bugba Delainbe. Khan is a Montreal-based clinical counselor in private practice. Today, he came by the cafe to talk to us about a variety of different things, including societal expectations, social connections, how to support those around us who may be in distress, and the importance of not dismissing people's concerns, and his advice for folks who feel like they are struggling. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Colin Buba Delembe, born and raised in native Montreal and still situated there. I currently work as a clinical counselor managing my own private practice. And I also work as an EDI consultant and a mental health consultant. I teach part-time at Champlain College as a psychology instructor. And then I also do appearances in terms of speaking events and, and engagements and content development or creation, presentations, facilitated discussions, workshops. Not so much trainings, because I feel like trainings really speaks more to skill-based, where I think my work is more presentations and what I develop is, is a lot more about providing resources or developing understanding and awareness. So more about um, an approach that's a facilitated way of learning and, and increasing understanding. What got you interested in mental health? It wasn't my original choice. I, I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer. And I think I always knew that I had to do work in, in service of other people in terms of what spoke to me the most and what seemed organic and how I wanted to spend my time. And I had the privilege of having an option class in psychology in my high school in grade 11. And I think about two months in, I had realized that that's where, that was the field that I needed to work in. So it wasn't really specified. I just knew that I wanted to one day kind of just manage my own private practice. Outside of that, like I've always been fascinated with, with people and behavior and identity formation, like I people watch all the time. So I think that was really appealing. It kind of helped me make sense of a lot of things in terms of experiences in my life and kind of how that shaped and resulted to some degree in who I was. And it was just really interesting and cool as well. Like I was found myself more naturally engaged with that topic than anything else that I'd come across. And it's still the case to this day. That's really neat. I identify with your fascination of human behavior. I too am very intrigued by people and why they do what they do. I'm curious, you know, mental health gets more and more coverage these days. Everyone now seems like very aware of mental health. People are taking mental health breaks. Something that also seems to be perhaps to me more common than before are suicides. Why do you think that might be? I know that we look sometimes and we think, oh my gosh, this person is like rich or they've got all these things going for them. What on earth could be so sad in your life? But 
How do we make sense of that? I think it's it's a bit hard to say. I think that with just changes in society and how that leads to changes in people, I think that's created a variety of different experiences that some people may struggle with. But it seemed like that those kind of changes grew and evolved maybe a bit faster than our awareness and understanding of the impact and the results. And so I think at times it's people existing and in, in living in isolation. I think also people coming a bit more aware of some of the struggles that they're having as well. Sometimes it's more expectation or responsibility or pressure within society as, as things grow and develop and there are more options and, and more ways of, I think, being successful or that ways that in which we're supposed to be happy. So I think that might play into it a lot, but it, it also varies across different cultures and, and races and ethnicities. And you also mentioned the idea of, you know, sometimes people uh, seemingly being happy and successful and then yet still um, hearing of, of those individuals committing suicide. And to that, I think sometimes we kind of get trapped in, in the myths or the beliefs that we have in society. So oftentimes you hear of things where they, they kind of equate to the recipe for success. And we think of money and, and maybe fame or prestige in terms of what we do, how many people know us, uh, how people seemingly feel about us. And so we've kind of crystallized this, I- this idea or so that if you have certain ingredients or elements in your life that are prevalent, that you have everything that you need to be happy or that you should be happy. And I think that on the individual, that puts a lot of pressure to kind of live up to this expectation. And, and then you internalize that. And sometimes it's hard to feel as though you're failing at life. It's hard to constantly hear messages and narratives of how you should be feeling and, and how you should be you know, this living this ideal life. And so coming to question, well, what's wrong with me? How am I so flawed? Do I deserve what I have or this life as a whole? I also think that it limits how people can understand us, right? We may be limited in what we share because we feel that no one will understand. And sometimes our feelings are invalidated because, oh, you got nothing to complain about. Oh, you'll be okay. And it's just brushed aside. And so if people, sometimes even the people closest to you are saying that, then what is your expectation that someone's actually going to believe you or truly hear you, listen to you and help you? And I think sometimes a lot of that kind of plays into it. And then those people seemingly are loved and known in that we know, like we know they exist, right? But people don't really know who they are, what they're going through. And they kind of exist on this island, with no bridge or way of, of being reached or reaching out. And then I think people kind of drown in that, that struggle and that misery or that despair of, of not just the suffering that they're going through, but that they're suffering alone. And then at times we feel that if we look around and either physically we're alone or just emotionally or relationship-wise we're alone, that as well could feeling like adding to our misery, feeling like a sign of failure and not representing a life that perhaps people want to continue with. You've piqued so many more questions <laughs> with, that, with that response. I like when you said recipe for happiness. I think that's really real. Like, I think we do think once I have this, 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 and this, then I'm set. There's like, what more can one need? And you mentioned expectation or pressures from society. And so I'm wondering how we manage 
those expectations or pressures? What would be a, a good way to not internalize that, perhaps? I think it depends on the people around you and the supports that you have and how it is that they view and understand who you are, as well as to what type of proximity you allow them to exist relative to what you might deem as your core, your true self, or the parts of, of you that you're most vulnerable about. I think also as well that this might play into a bit the importance of having the diversity of people around you. And so people who maybe exist from a different world and have different values and different expectations and can see who you are through a lens that isn't tinted or biased by existing and being a product of the same culture that you're in. And then yes, um, mental health services definitely is a way, but not everybody has the ability or the willingness um, or the belief that that is something that is going to work, especially if you have such an ongoing narrative of feeling that who you are and your experiences and your emotions that the result from them have been invalidated or rejected or negated. And so, you know, if that is something that is consistent or constant, that becomes our worldview or our self-view. If that is something that has been perpetuated or created by the people who you feel or expect to be different or the most caring, then, you know, that might work against your belief that, uh, well, a complete stranger might be able to be different. I like that. How can we be lonely at a time where it seems like we're so connected? You mentioned that and I think, oh my gosh, but we've got our phones, we've got the internet, everyone's connected, it seems. So how can we make sense of loneliness in such a seemingly connected world? I think it depends how you view being connectedness. And I think there's degrees of being connected to people. So you might be connected to, let's say, your classmates or people you work with, right? Or even to a certain degree, people in your neighborhood, you say hello, a small talk or so. But that connection can be surface level and that connection can be superficial, right? Like we're connected technically, let's say through technology or social media or so, but what are people connecting to? Are they connecting to, to us or are they connecting to the mask that we feel that we need to put on? Are they connecting to who we are or are they connecting to the projection of who we are? Are they connecting to our true nature self or are they connecting to how they want to see us or how they want us to be? And I think it's a lot of it of that. Like we don't necessarily put the entirety or full authentic selves into these different measures or, or means of connection, even though they exist. And I mean, to sound to be cliche, I think what might help with that is the age old adage of quality over quantity. I think the quantity in terms of the variety and the, the amount of ways that we can be connected to some degree have increased. But what people may deem as real, true, genuine, authentic connection, I don't think that that has met the rise in the amount of ways that we can be connected. And perhaps maybe even those same types of like deeper level connections have gone down because of how things have changed. Such a deep and complex thought. I like it. So I'm thinking then that you raised the question of what is the quality of our connections. And you touched on the fact that there are these expectations or pressures put on us and we might have experiences that are negated. I rather suspect that perhaps people don't mean to negate us, 
what are appropriate ways to respond? I think people want to be helpful sometimes. And someone says they're feeling down. Of course, everybody who feels down is not interested in committing suicide. But, you know, somebody comes to express their concerns to you. And then you just start to list off all the ways they're fabulous. And like, why, why could you possibly <laughs> be distressed? So what might be a better way to approach that? It's interesting. I hear a lot of comments from people, whether that's personally or through my work, talking about how they have people they're really close with, but they still won't turn to them to share mm-hmm. because of their the way in which they support or, or, or so is not what they need. And I think sometimes there's two parts to that and there's no blame or fault. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact and I often remind clients, like if you're this close with someone, like you can tell them exactly what it is that you need and how you need them to be. And oftentimes they'll respond that way, right? Like just think of the times when you come, like maybe it's exaggerated or maybe it's times that we see that are cliche or movies or, or TV shows. But someone comes in, it's like, listen, I don't want to talk. I don't want to do this. I just need to play a video game. I just need to go out. I just need to rain. And like, sometimes like those suggestions of, you know, I need a drink. I need a part. Like, I'm not saying that those are the best things to do, but oftentimes I think it's a great example of being able to have authorship in the way in which people support you. Right. Sometimes I think people do what they feel is best or what they know and isn't necessarily what you need. So sometimes we just try and make somebody feel better. And I think all that to go through our own process of learning that some people need that immediate solutions and just want to feel better. But some people, some people don't need you when, when they're in a hole to just reach out your hand. Some people need you to climb down and meet them where they're at and sit there. And then you get out together. And I think that's really important to understand. But what it also speaks to as well is that I don't think it's necessarily selfish, but I think a lot of times the way that we comfort people is about ourselves and has nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. I think that we sometimes face stories, narrative situations, things that are told to us that we are overwhelmed or feel powerless or helpless. Like, what do I do? I don't, I've never heard of this. And so it's our own discomfort and uneasiness that sometimes makes us disconnect or kind of end it quickly and not engage more and more or, or explore or try and make them feel better thinking that it's about them when there's a significant part that it's about us. Because the quicker you can get away of that, like move those emotions away, the better you feel about yourself. So we, we lose sight of, of who it is that we're actually trying to help or maybe kind of console in that specific moment. And it's human. Like I, I'm not criticizing or blaming anybody. Like I think we've all felt victim to this. But I think that sometimes drives it. And so we miss the point where we miss opportunities for that person to feel that it's safe enough to, to dive deeper or to open up more because that person has shown the currency necessary to access that vulnerability, which is understanding and a willingness and an ability to sit there and, and be able to take that. Not everybody's built that way. I think that's in part why in a combination with great support, family and friends, oftentimes mental health professionals are working is so pivotal or key because you have people through how they're wired, how they're built, through how the profession is designed, through what they've learned, how they've molded themselves, are better equipped to be able to deal with that. It's not, it's I think it's a large part where not everybody does it, right? Like so many people ask me, how do you not take that home? How does that not work? Like, and sometimes there's there's skill and techniques. And a lot of times it's just like, I don't know. It's just how it is, right? Like, um, but I think that uh, definitely plays into it. I think that sometimes we're so quick to find a solution or we're so quick to resolve the issue 
kind of like on a test and then you just miss the mark, you don't get the right answer because you didn't slow down and show all your work. Really an interesting metaphor I think you used there. Is there a way to sense that or signs that we can look for that someone's in distress so we can offer support? I think we have to accept that sometimes there are no signs and it's not so much about, we don't want to be overly reliant on signs, so to speak, because those are generalities. It's not universal. It's not all the time. So I think what's important is not to kind of rely or wait and be like, if something's really wrong, they'll tell me or something's really wrong, I'll see it or I'll notice. So I think it's important to, to kind of take that into account. And I think that at times it's not really about seeing signs rather than, well, back to what you mentioned before, that level of connection. And if you're close enough, that person sharing with you or letting you know, and it might completely blindside you and you never saw a couple. And I think that also happens quite a bit. And so that lets us know that like, no, like it's not about, about science. I think I learned that a lot working with my work in high school as a, as a guidance counselor and that there's some kids who on the surface you think have it all together academically, athletically, health, levels of attraction, popularity, all of these things. And then like just myself being so shocked to be like, wow, you're really struggling you're insecure like you have like it's 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 amazing and i think we're all a victim of stereotypes and assumptions about what a healthier and unhealthy happier and unhappy person looks like outside of that like sometimes might be an individual kind of self-isolating themselves moving away from what their normal engagements or passions responsibilities drastic changes in behavior drops in mood kind of Extreme behavior, and I mean more an extreme relative to who they normally or, or usually are. And there might be some signs, risky behavior, substance use or abuse, different things like that. But then all those things also exist in people who are nowhere near uh, a point of, of hopelessness or desperation that can then lead to suicide. Something else that comes to mind on this very topic is the concept of first world problem. Mm-hmm. We hear that a lot. What are your thoughts on first world problem? I think the term has to be used in moderation. I think on the one hand, the term exists and is used to kind of allow people to not like kind of have tunnel vision and just hone in too much on what they're dealing with and balance it out with the fact that you have many other positives or privileges in your life or that there sometimes we do become a bit complacent about what we're dealing with. And it, it is sobering or helpful to hear that, you know, there are people who have it worse and, and it makes you appreciative. So there's there's a role for that term. I think the problem though, like I've had clients in the room, they'll say something where it's important to them and they'll be like, oh, first world problems. And they're just brushing it off themselves. And I always pause and it's just like, it doesn't matter. It's not first world problems, it's your world problems, right? Like, and I'll say like bluntly, like if you took the time to sit here and make yourself more vulnerable and more exposed than you ever have with anyone in your life to a complete stranger and are paying significant money for it, and that's what you bring up, then it's significant. Like, don't dismiss your own kind of suffering or struggles because you feel like it doesn't meet a certain threshold or mark of acceptance or validity in the eyes of people that don't mean anything to you, have no bearing or existence in your reality, or have no understanding of who you are. It doesn't matter if somebody else would brush it off or that it's not a big thing or see it as trivial. Like 
you have to respond, you have to adhere to your own experiences and reality. That's something that's important or big enough for you, then that warrants addressing. It doesn't mean that you don't move forward in a way where something of that level perhaps no longer distresses you or causes you such problems. But in that moment, if that's what you're dealing with, that's what you're dealing with. Like, I don't think like, would you tell a child who's crying because their favorite toy is lost or broken? Oh, first world problems. Like, like, I think we can understand that that would be kind of damaging and, and very like insensitive or so. And I apologize if I've called out anyone who's actually done that. Um, but yeah, like, I think we can kind of relate to that. So it, it's no different. It's like you have to have a certain level of suffering or misery or only a certain category or like abstract a vague list of issues warrant like significant help or help to certain degrees. And I, I don't think that makes sense, but that's my bias. I, I love the way you put that. If it's significant enough for you to mention, then it's not first world problems. It's your problem. I, I love that perspective. Do you see a difference between the struggles that men and women have when it comes to mental health? Yes, because I think we're, we're, I mean, there's still expectations and norms and stereotypes and gender roles and, and images of, that are still a little bit rigid at times of what masculinity or femininity or what it is to be a man or a woman are. So I think that we're similar, but we're also very different and we exist in this world in very different ways. So I think with that, yes, there are differences. What I've noticed for some men, not, not overgeneralizing, but I think what occurs and what contributes to that is because of those same roles and expectations there isn't the same level of freedom to be emotional or to be vulnerable or the liberty to to express that and then those experiences allow you and people meeting your needs allow you to feel that like in the same way a child through its its how it behaves or crying and how a parent meets his needs allow it to, to develop a certain sense of safety about the world with those people or about certain behaviors that they do and I think it's not different in that if you're allowed the freedom to express certain things and then it's deemed to be okay or it's expected and it's met um, and it's valued, then that changes your safety about it. And that changes your growth and your emotional intelligence about emotions. And I don't know that men in general or across certain races or cultures always have that freedom, whether that's society, men, women, those who identify as such or themselves with that pressure on themselves. I feel that also contributes to issues and then having a community of support, right? If we're generalizing a bit and this is what men go through, then chances are there are other men who also maybe lack the language to properly articulate or communicate what they need or the ability to manage and hold emotions or male emotions specifically because um, it's not modeled and they don't have experience and then it could be overwhelming, right? And then it goes back to what we discussed before. If you are struggling to make sense or articulate or explain what it is that you're going through, right? There's oftentimes this, well, if I can't understand myself, how is anybody else going to? So then we don't say anything, right? And it just kind of causes us to spiral or kind of sink further and further in, into our struggles or our difficulties. So I know that's focused a little bit more on men, but I think like that's some significant differences that I've seen that I think contribute to some of the issues. Also, why you see far less men engaging with and utilizing mental health services than you do women or, or those who identify as such. Yeah. And then I think that kind of perpetuates. I think we all struggle and deal with things, but a lot of times it maybe never makes it to therapy because of 
your own strengths and resources, and then the resources and strengths of those around you. It's incredibly damaging to when you're suffering or had an experience to have that invalidated or dismissed. I think we all inherently know that. And if we anticipate that in any way, shape, or form, doesn't matter who you are, there's a really good chance you're not going to put yourself through that because you might end up worse on the other side. Wow. I like that. We all inherently know that, but somehow I we believe so. I do. Like, again, that's my bias. That's my belief. But I, I genuinely feel that way. Yeah. But somehow we still fall prey to it sometimes as the person struggling and as the person that might be on the receiving end of listening to the stories that somehow, you know. I think it shifts though, right? Like there's how we feel and then there's how we tell ourselves and the world tells ourselves how we should feel, right? And so like, I think we all have heard of um, concept of basic human needs. What isn't always known is that a sense of belonging has actually been put in that category of basic human needs, right? Even if it goes against maybe your well-being, you might be driven just to feel as though you belong or you're accepted to your own detriment, whether in that moment or down the road. And sometimes it's about that, right? Like, we know how we feel, but we're not supposed to, or should we? And we don't hear any message that say that it's okay. So it's either we take ownership and kind of exist in the way that we feel, but then we're isolated and we're lonely and that leads to its own suffering, right? Or you kind of push it aside or push it down or suck it up and then you have a community to some degree. Even though it's a community that may not fully recognize you or know you or truly value you because they don't know the extent of who you are because you don't feel that, that you're able or safe to show that you still have a community. You still have some sense of belonging and shared identification. And again, it's a basic human need. And and if that's the case, it will supersede or take over sometimes how we feel. That makes sense. Can you think of any myths or misconceptions that you often hear that you feel might be worthy of dispelling when it comes to mental health or therapy or seeking help that it's a sign of weakness or failure i think that might be the biggest one for different reasons i think or we feel that when we get messages that being emotive or being emotional in a certain situation or crying or being sensitive or or being vulnerable they think like oftentimes if i say vulnerable a lot of people will associate that with some type of weakness or like being more prone to be hurt i think there's truth in being more prone to be hurt because I see vulnerability as how much of the armor do you take off? Like how much of the mask do you remove and how often? How open and transparent? And yes, through that, can it lead to potential attack or hurt? I'm not denying that. Uh, but I think that vulnerability is is almost equated or made synonymous with uh, weakness or less than or failure. Or it's it's like you off wall. It's changing a bit now, but like growing up, I never heard vulnerability in a positive light. And I never heard anyone talk about the importance of embracing and accepting and, and being at peace or at one or being connected with your vulnerability. I never heard anybody say that that's something to strive to in terms of your comfort and your ability to be vulnerable. Like yet, at least in my work now and and then just personally growing up, like I think it's it's essential. And I think it's a huge reason why people suffer because how they interpret and understand that, what they feel that word, word connotes and what they feel that it means or explains about themselves. We don't teach vulnerability. We don't teach emotional intelligence, right? Like we don't teach how to speak with one another. We don't teach active listening or how to just sit there, right? Like we don't teach how to not 
shift a conversation to yourself, even though you're trying to find a relatable example and how that robs somebody of their narrative or voice. Like, you know, we experience that. And sometimes we learn that, or sometimes we suffer from that, but we don't teach it. We don't talk it. We don't promote it. You just get to a certain point and then it's expected of you. That's really interesting. Uh, You said we don't teach about giving somebody a a relatable example and then not taking it away from their story. Can you go into that a little bit more? I think there's an art to it. But oftentimes I've seen people like, oh, yeah, that's like me when and they kind of and there's a way of and there's a timing of when to do that to let that person know that you understand them to convey like that level of understanding but it's very nuanced and subtle or fine line but at other times i've heard a lot of people feel like they just make it about them and i don't really think it's like this conscious deliberate desire to kind of steal the spotlight so to speak but it still happens right i think it's such a common way of us kind of engaging with someone and trying to be supportive. But I mean, sometimes it's often very effective and it's often not. How can you feel heard if I'm the one talking? I would just say other than that, like other myths would just be like who mental health services are for. And I think there's a caveat. Like I think it's for everybody, but I think it's not available to everyone because of it's designed in a way where it takes privilege to be able whether it's at times because it just happens to be a part of your culture, oftentimes it's the privilege of access to resources or money. It's not covered by healthcare. It's not, not all professionals are covered by, by all insurances. The level of degrees that people need to get in order to get it, which then means it limits the diversity of people that you can go and see who look, feel, and, and are readily, that you can readily identify with. And then again, that triggers the fear and concern about invalidation of our experience or lack of understanding or the extra bandwidth that we have to go into to explain things that we kind of need people to understand in order to move forward and flow. And so that's why I feel like it's for everybody, but it's not available necessarily to everybody for those reasons. I like that because, you know, it sounds like you're touching on like diversity of providers and maybe if I don't have a provider that looks like me will they understand my experience or worldview if they don't come from my culture etc but then when you say who is it for I can imagine too that some people might be like well I don't need it I mean there's some things that are bothering me but I feel like I should leave the space for someone who has like more problems (laughs) or something like that you know like I think I've heard you refer to it before as do I deserve versus am I allowed? There's a lot of people who feel that like, I mean, you see this all the time, socially, friendship groups, family, work, mental health services or so like this, this people saying that like, I don't know if my problem warrants or deserves, you know, if it's big enough of an issue or serious enough of an issue to take towards a, a mental health professional. Maybe sometimes that's a way of just avoiding something that people feel would be difficult. And that's understandable. But I think we've deemed certain things as just kind of trivial and it's not necessarily fair, right? Like, and I, I don't mean to be appropriate by saying this, but an example that I experienced a lot was when I was working in high school is the way people talk about quote unquote, use air quotations, girl drama. And like the way people talk about it is very dismissive. Oh, it's trivial. It's juvenile. It's nothing important. They kind of brush it off. Whereas... I never looked at it that way because it like, now mind you, I'm not lying. Like, did I ever hold the position of that? Like I'm, I'm human and I grew, I still grew up in guy culture and I went to an all boys school. Like there, I got, like, I didn't always exist the way that I am now. Uh, no, like absolutely not. But it's never, I never 
I tried as much as possible once I, I like as I entered like studying for this field and then existing in this field of, of the moment that I say that, then I'm not making about the other person. I'm making about what I value or what I think. I got to be aware of that, but it has to be checked and balanced and brought in when it's appropriate and helpful, not in a way that's going to be invalidating or dismissive or, or deny someone the opportunity or, or the, the comfort of coming to see me or addressing it, right? Like for some people, that girl drama is the end all be all of their world, right? Like sometimes it's, you know, oh, it's teenage love, like, oh, it's puppy love, oh, you'll get over it. No, but that is their world shattering at that moment. And that is the single most important thing to them. You don't want to maybe go all the way kind of feeding into that or, or enabling that to a degree. But again, like I said before, if you want to earn that currency of, of maybe helping them change the way that they see it or how much weight or significance, the power that they put into it so it's not controlling them, that's a, like, you got to earn that. And the currency for that, I think, is meeting them where they're at and showing them that, that you, there's either you understand or, or that you're willing to understand. And that in those moments, there's nothing more important or greater than whatever it is that they feel is causing their world to crumble. Once you earn that and that trust and that rapport, I think you can reach them and you can educate and you can teach and you'll have the right to, and they'll believe that because you've earned it. Like, you're sitting with them in the trenches, like earned you that currency to then use to help them shift the way in which they view that or relate to that. So it's not so debilitating. So when we think about men, are there any situations in which you feel like men uh, are more likely to feel comfortable being vulnerable? Yeah, I think there's two that come to mind. So one, I think is more automatic maybe in that I think with women. So how long it lasts, I think varies, but I think just in terms of like gender norms and in how uh, we view things and men or women's roles for those identify as such, um, there's this expectation or view of like, I think the woman within a family as like being motherly, uh, you know, having a mama's boy, like, you know, like we see like the identification with uh, young boys, oftentimes with women and young girls with men, not exclusively, but it's often portrayed that way. And I think through that and, and, their earliest experiences of the safety of being able to be that open or reliant or dependent or needy to a certain degree and not in a negative way like in the same way that a child or an infant is needy that's our earliest relationship with an ability to feel vulnerable in a safe space to do that so i think i mean listen you can go a deep dive with like freudian psychology in terms of what like men looking for partners that are like their mothers that's a separate conversation but i think that is their earliest experience and since that's where it's deemed safe and then potentially with a partner, but it's how that also looks, right? Like that could just be like the outpouring of the emotion or how like there's often jokes that like all male emotions are, are always grounded down into like happiness, laughter, and just anger because that's all we're allowed to feel. So maybe something like that. So I think oftentimes that's where it feels more comfortable or, or more natural um, that might lead to men seeking uh, female therapists or those who identify as such. The other place I would actually say is sport. I think that it's more acceptable. I mean, it's not like completely, because you won't be mocked or jared, but I think we've often seen like, you know, high level or extremely successful athletes where at that point we'll be like, oh, they care about it so much or they're so passionate or it meant so much to them, right? And it's just, yeah, like, you see some people who sometimes get mocked for that, but you also see another side of some people who kind of can embrace that. 
so I think sometimes that's the two places that you might see it uh, a bit more. And from what I've seen and heard also, just like with children, but like it seems very much like the birth, the magic of like the birth of your child as well, like becoming a father. And like, you know, like you, you might see it there as well. Weddings are portrayed that way, where like, like when they're giving vows, but like these very specific, and it's uh-huh. not, it lasts forever in the entirety of the relationship. It's, it's like those moments, sports, it's like the extreme disappointment of losing a championship on a final shot or something like that, or missing like the game winning shot like specifically wedding vows, specifically like the birth of your child and, and like infancy, right? Like specifically, like when you were a child at that time, it's not like these person or these areas or context relationships. And then like, it always exists as long as that relationship is maintained and exists. Mm-hmm. Like it's more spotty. I like that. What have you learned about yourself from dealing with people's problems? I'll answer that in terms of what people have taught me just from how they interact with me or, or the feedback that they'll say. I think there's something about me that just seems to be very comfortable. I have had a lot of people tell me that like, there's something about me that is, that can be very calming or comfortable. There's something about me that, or my aura or energy has been said a lot of times to be that way. I think people see me as being very non-judgmental. I think my own isolation growing up and not feeling like I had an outlet or anyone would understand me as a person, as a male, as a black male, as a member of my family, being the outcast, as a sensitive male. I think having to deal with that and kind of exist in my own world to that degree fortunately worked out in that I spent a lot of time exploring my own thoughts and my experiences and my emotions, and I never brushed them away. Like I was just this weird kid who like thought it was important to sit with it. Like I can sit down in, in like a room by myself and bring myself to tears without saying a word. And I'm okay with that. And I think that has allowed me to, to have a certain level of connection or to be attuned emotionally to people or to have a certain level of insight so people feel that I, I readily get it. And I think all the people watching and navigating a world that isn't my own and that was never built for me and that having to understand everybody else was a key to success has allowed me to understand everybody else to some degree. And I think those are the things that I've, I've learned about myself. I've learned that people can see me as being calm, which is really funny if, if you ask myself or people who know me from earlier or younger. How are you able to unplug when you get home? How do you disconnect from your work? So part of it is that my life has always been built up with a recognition and understanding of who I was and then my necessary outlets and passions. So I always have that. It keeps me balanced. It keeps me joyful. It allows me with necessary or um, appropriate or healthy escapes. Like I think that is a huge piece of it. But if I'm being really honest, for different reasons, no one asked me about my work. I think part of that comes with understanding that it's confidential, and in many ways that can help. And that people, in the same way that my clients trust me, I think my friends do as well, and understand that like trust is paramount. And so I don't divulge anything I never had even before I got into this field. But no one asked me about my work. There are different people in my life to different degrees who know what I do. But I think that there's so few people who I think truly understand what I do who are also that close to who I am. And part of that is because the people who exist in what I do in terms of maybe consultancy and, and, and EDI and whatnot, who are similar to me or look like me, we all, I think a lot of us feel isolated and scattered, right? Like we're not working in like these teams together always. And then the use of mental health services and, and the appropriateness of mental health within the Black community is definitely growing, but not the number of clinicians, or at least not like on the Anglophone side. Like 
to like to this point right now, I think myself and David Archer are the only two black male anglophone therapists in the greater Montreal area. And maybe even Quebec. So who am I going to talk to? Right. Like in terms of really like beyond that, we share the same field, right? Like, like there's levels to it. So who, who am I actually going to talk to? That's been my life. No one in my community and around that I've associated with has, has ever had a true understanding, appreciation, or even experience with the field that I'm in, in terms of psychology. No one has led me there. No one has understood it. No one has encouraged it. Like oftentimes no one I know has, has used it. So who would I talk to about? Like there's a huge there's a massive portion of who I am in my life that has always been unknown, that has always been kind of on an island or lonely to a certain degree. And so I think part of it is just internalizing. I'm a product of a single parent household. My mom had to work multiple jobs to provide. Like I didn't see my mom in high school at all unless she was sleeping. Like I didn't have a relationship like that with my mom. My brother, like we joke at times, we're still not sure if he's born with a basic set of human emotions. It's just, but he's not, he's not like, or how he expresses a sensitivity is not like me. I shouldn't say he's not sensitive. There was no outlet. There was never anybody to turn to. There was never, I was surrounded by people who never looked like me, didn't come from my, my way of life. And I never felt would truly understand. And that was kind of supported through some experiences. So I think I was thrust into a life where it wasn't an option. And then I think by internalizing that and being used and familiar with that and so much of who I am and my success being based on having to deal with that, that I think that's just my way of being. And so I don't always talk about it very often. And I don't feel that there's people who truly understand in depth, like what it is that I do and who I am as a person and how that is manifesting what it is that I do. Such a powerful question. Who am I going to talk to? <laughs> When you put it like that, when you you narrow it down to the dearth of folks like you in in a large metropolitan area, it's pretty mm. crazy. As we wrap up, what advice would you give to someone who feels like they're struggling with their mental health? Is there stuff you wish to do? You? I don't think there's a set of criteria that determines whether or not you should get help or if it's worth it or if you can be helped. I think that's really important. It's it's don't don't be so limiting in, in mm-hmm. your ability to get help. I know it's hard. My bias is that I think that everybody needs a community of people in a context in which they can feel recognized and appreciated and valued and, and really kind of seen for exactly who they are and how that kind of adds value in terms of who they are and safety and comfort and confidence in being that person and how all wounds need exposure to heal. So when those things exist, there's a greater ability to expose maybe some of those wounds and allow the necessary exposure or air, if you will, to be able to heal. Yes, we have a a responsibility to ourselves, but we're not built and designed or maybe even meant to take care and deal with all of our own problems on our own. You can be the driving force and the agent by who you seek help with and how you seek help and how you engage and what you internalize and, and what you, what path you decide to take. I don't think we're meant to exist in isolation or to suffer or to try and problem solve or fix everything in isolation. I think that's really important. You have to find your voice. And it's not about an absence of fear or discomfort or uneasiness, but your ability to grow in, in having that voice and articulating your needs 
is essential. And I think that that's important, like in order for you to be helped and seen and recognized, like we do play a large part in having to kind of make that available and make people aware. And it's not easy. Like some people will hurt you. Some people will disappoint you and let you down. Your past becomes your future when you allow it to be. And you're not a slave to that. Or just if time is moving on, but you're still focused behind you instead of looking forward. It's like, like you can stand in a room that is completely dark and without light and the entranceway is perfectly molded to your body and your sides. And behind you is pure light and you feel like there's nothing that you can see. Like, is that true or is it perspective? And I think that's also important. Any closing thoughts? A goal or a dream of mine is to be able to sit down with some members in my community or outside of my community, like allyship is important, and hopefully kind of work with some universities and get funding from the government and really build and develop a program that goes in and speaks to Black youth elementary, beginning of high school, and their families as well, and allow them to understand the importance and the appropriateness of mental health support for our community. But beyond that, also how imperative it is that we start to develop our own clinicians. We have to be a major part and driving force in our own healing because we've seen if we wait why it's not going to happen and other people aren't necessarily going to take it up or be in the best position to kind of like <laughs> i think of fubu for us by us but i think that it kind of reigns true in that i think we are severely lacking and i know it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows depending on where you're looking at like we're very different from toronto or so right like it's not going to be the same but as a whole i i think at least here in montreal it, it's so important especially for the anglo community because for those who exist, like I, I think given the amount of increasing awareness as the world changes, I don't know how sustainable it is. Like honestly, like I'm actually genuinely worried. That sounds like an amazing initiative. That sounds really needed. It sounds like it would make an impact. And as you point out, it's so essential. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I personally found it very thought-provoking. Some of the key takeaways are don't dismiss your struggles because you feel they are not significant enough relative to someone else's. We are not meant to take care of and deal with all of our problems on our own. And your past becomes your future when you allow it to. Before I say farewell, I encourage you to join our mailing list so that you can find out when our Good Health Cafe Lounge starts. It's going to be in April and you want to get on the list so you can have all the information in order to join our live experience. Of course, if you ever have questions, please reach out to me. You can find me on our website, thegoodhealthcafe.com, on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.